Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you, Lord, that God, you are all those things that we just sung, Lord. You are so worthy of our praise. God, you are the name above all names. You're the one who is with us and deserving of the highest exaltation right now, Lord. So God, we praise you that you you are all these things and we sing these words because they're true. And yet, Lord, we know that our experience is that we so often live worshiping other things, valuing other things more than you, Lord. God, we are here on the foundation of your gospel that you have forgiven us of these things. God, that you call us to a life of worship and make it possible by sending your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we give you praise. Thank you for the Spirit. God, fill us now with your Holy Spirit as we open up your word. God, we just confess this, that we need you. God, we need you. Would you drive your truth so deep into our hearts this morning, God? Would you change us? Would you save among us? Would you sanctify us? God, do this work among us, we pray. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab your seat and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I want to let you know it's going to be a lot of flipping this morning, or if you're one of those phone Bible users, a lot of poking this morning, because I have an ambitious goal this morning, and when I told someone, actually this very morning, when I told them about this goal, they said, ha-ha, that's a funny joke. And my goal this morning is to go with you from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 to talk about gospel-centered worship. And I know some of you guys are pretty worried right now about how long this message is going to be. And I want you to know I'm not going to hit every verse, but we're going to try to trace the story, especially the story of worship from Genesis 1 to the end of God's Word. And so you can open up your Bibles to Genesis 1. I want to ask you this question as you are finding the first page of Scripture. Let me ask you this question. What interests you? What do you find interesting? This is a question we often ask people when we first meet them, isn't it? And it's a question we ask because you can really find a lot of different answers to that question. If we were to set up a mic here and have everyone go through and name the things that they found of interest to them, maybe their hobbies or things that they found valuable or worthwhile of their time and resources and attention, we would find all these different things. And really an undeniable fact of humanity that we all experience, whether you're a Christian or maybe you come here this morning with a different worldview, well, something we can't deny is that as a people, we are interested. Now, I'm not saying interesting. Some of us are interesting and more interesting than others. But I'm saying that we are interested in things. Naturally, it's our human inclination to be interested in things. Even the most uninterested person. You might think of the teenager who you ask them about their their week, and they say, uh, how's your week? I don't know. Good. And they give you nothing. Well, even that person's interested in some things, and the very thing you know when you're talking to a teenager like that is that they're at least not interested in you. But have you ever thought about this question? Why? Why as human beings are we interested in things? Why as human beings Do each of us find different things valuable? Do each of us find it worthwhile to spend our time doing different things? And the Bible gives us an answer. 
And the answer the Bible gives us is that the reason that we are an interested people, the reason why human beings find things valuable and worthwhile is because at our very core of our being, we're worshipers. This is who we are. Our identity is to worship. Now, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and your response to this is, I am not a worshiper, okay? And I'm here at this worship service, but I want you to know I wasn't even singing. So I'm not a worshiper. That's just not what I do. And I'm not using this in the sense of the fact that you're a worshiper of God. It is true that if you're in Christ, you're called to be a worshiper of God. But even if you're in Christ, you know that we struggle to worship many other things. What I am saying is that no matter what, if you are human, to be human is to worship something. By our very nature, we are worshipers. We're always, we have this magnetic attraction to things or to people and to finding value or interest or worth in these things or these people. And when you start to realize this, you come to realize that really your whole life has been a life of worship. You could tell your life story really by the things that you worship. From the day you were born, you were driven by the things that you considered worthy of your time, of your attention, of your affection, of your resources. When you were a child, this dictated the things that you played with and found interesting. It dictated the friends that you have and hung out with. And as you grew, it impacted the career that you chose and eventually the person that you would marry. So that really all of your life is a decision that's based on what you worship. And you need to know that the story of your life and what you worship is so much bigger than you. That the story of worship that has really been your life is really a story of humanity. It's really a story of all of human history, past, present, and future. It's a story of worship. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to show you your place in this book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. I want to open up God's word and show you how your story of worship fits into God's greater story of worship and ultimately how God has acted to intervene in your life of worship. At the end of the day, isn't it true that we want to worship what's worthwhile? We want to be interested in the things that are valuable, truly valuable, truly worthwhile. This past week, I was reminded of this. It was before bedtime. And as a parent, this is one of the worst sounds you can hear. I heard the sound of the ice cream truck. And if I were to have $100 bills up here, and if I were to make it rain in this room, you still would not be as excited as my kids are when they hear the glorious tune of the ice cream truck. And so we heard it coming down the street, and my kids started going ballistic. Ice cream! We gotta go get ice cream! Let's go to the ice cream truck! And I promised them every summer... One time, we'll go to the ice cream truck. So I rolled my eyes like any good father. I said, great, here we go. Now's the time. So we went to the ice cream truck. Their hearts were being filled with anticipation as we were getting their shoes on. I was thinking of how much they're going to worship me for this moment. I'm, I'm being such a good dad. Bringing them to ice cream is going to be a memory we're never going to forget. We're going to get the ice cream and taste the glory of its sweetness. We ran down the street. We flagged the ice cream truck. We got the ice cream. And it was very disappointing ice cream. I was very sad that I would paid $18 to buy ice cream for my family. And if you had told me at that moment that I was just eating melted plastic, I would have believed you 
by the way that it tasted, by the way that my stomach felt after eating that ice cream. It really was a horrible experience. It was a letdown. This thing I thought was going to be worthwhile wasn't. Well, that's a silly illustration to maybe illustrate for us. What if you spend your life pursuing things that you think are worthwhile only to find at the end of it that it wasn't worth it? What if you spent your life, a life of worshiping, chasing the things you thought were valuable only to find that they didn't really satisfy? And we can think about that at the end of our life, but haven't you experienced in your life, as you look back on your life, that the things that you thought would fill you up, satisfy you, that would ultimately be pleasing in the end weren't? So many of us have lived our life placing our hope for fulfillment, for satisfaction, thinking that the worthwhile things are the things of this world. And so we look to maybe a thing like our wedding day, thinking that our spouse might ultimately satisfy us, only to realize that our spouse is a sinner who will time and time hopefully please us, but time and time again they'll let us down. This isn't the right time to nudge your partner. Not the right time right now. Maybe we thought that promotion at work would be the thing that would finally give us pleasure, would finally be worth it, would finally be worth all of our time and attention and resources only to realize that it wasn't. See, each of us, each of us, we have something on the horizon that we're tempted to believe will be the thing that's worth our time, attention, and resources. And yet, it hasn't come. And this morning, what God wants to do in our lives, in the story of our worship, is show us his greater plan for our worship The great news is that when we see his plan for our worship, we can truly, finally experience what our hearts were actually made to experience, the worship of God. And so I want you to open to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to work really hard to stay with me this morning, okay? I thought, should I put the text up on the screen? And the answer was no. I'm going to be cruel. I'm going to make people follow along with me. I'm going to read a lot of text. I'll tell you when to turn, okay? But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. At the beginning. Because you can't really understand your life if you don't start at the beginning, can you? When all things were created. You can't really understand your life if you don't know why you're here and what you're to do here. And I want you to notice specifically the first four words of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. I mean, these are perhaps the most important words in all of Scripture. And they're these words, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. These verses tell us something really important about who we are as human beings. These verses tell us that we aren't God. These verses tell us that God is God, and from the beginning, all eternity past, and for all eternity future, this God that the Bible in Genesis 1 speaks about is God. He was there in the beginning. That means that all of us who are here are created beings. God isn't created. He has always existed for all of eternity, and he will always exist. Those of us who are sitting here have birthdays. We know the days that we came into existence. We know the day that we came into being. This wasn't so for God. He has always been. He has always existed. And this answers for us one of the most important questions of life. Where, how, how did we get here? And why are we here? And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you're coming from the, or, or coming here this morning with the prevailing world view of our world, and that's of naturalism, of evolution, that the way that we got here was through evolution, was through the Big Bang, and that things slowly progressed until we 
came to the existence that we find ourselves in today. You reject Christianity because you can't understand how you can base your life on something that you can't see. And your argument is that I value reason, I value science, and so I want to base my life on something that's reasonable and something that's scientific. And I want you to know that I value that too. I value reason, I value science, and as I look at all the different worldviews, what I find is that the strongest reasonable, the strongest scientific argument to make sense of this world that we live in, to make sense of this existence that we find ourselves in, is found in the Bible. And the reason why I can't come to grips with the evolutionary worldview, and I want you to know that I've wrestled with it, and even day to day I'm open to wrestling with it, but I can't come to grips with it, is because it really can't answer this question. How did we get here, and why are we here? The ultimate question is, where do we come from? And the evolutionary worldview says that, well, well, we evolved from apes. And then so my question is, well, where did those apes come from? You say, well, they evolved from fish who grew legs and walked up to land. And I say, okay, well, that, maybe that's possible, but where did those fish come from? Well, it was pond scum that eventually evolved through macroevolution to fish. And you say, where did that pond scum come from? Well, when the Big Bang happened, this world by chance happened to be created and the pond was part of it with the scum, the, the pond scum being part of it as well. And I say, well, where did the Big Bang come from? Well, you get the picture here. Two particles of dust collided against each other. And I say, well, where did those particles of dust come from? And if you keep asking that question, eventually you have to answer this question. Did we come from nothing or have we existed for all of eternity? And the Bible breaks in at that point of the question to say this, that we have existed for all of eternity. God for all of eternity has existed, past, present, and future. He is eternal. Answers the question, in the beginning, God. The answer of Genesis 1 is that we were created by God, and God is the one who has always been and will always be. This is who God is. And we come into this story because this eternal God chose to create us. This is what the rest of Genesis 1 is about. God creating us. And so this answers the question, how did I come into being? But another really important question of our life is, why are we here? And the rest of Genesis 1 really answers this question. Why did God create this world and why did God put us on it? And you start to see it in Genesis 1. You start to see what's guiding God's creative process, why he's creating the things that he's creating. And so look at Genesis 3 on the first day. Sorry, Genesis 1, verse 3. On the first day, what God creates, he says, let there be light, and there was light. God creates this light with his voice, with the power of his word, and then he stands back, and this happens at the end of each day. He stands back, and I want to read this together, okay? Let's do some corporate reading together. In verse 4, it says, and God saw that the light was, can you read that word with me? And God saw that the light was good. God steps back, and what's the measure that he's using? As he steps back and sees creation, the measure that he's using is his own pleasure. God steps back, and he sees the light, and he says, this is good. This is pleasing to me. This adequately declares my glory and my worth. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. This guy above proclaims his handiwork. 
Because when God created this world, he was creating things that would glorify him and proclaim his handiwork. This is why Paul says in Romans 1 that his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that were made. See, as God was making this world, he was making things that were proclaiming his glory, proclaiming his worth as the creator, as God. It was proclaiming his power and ultimately everything in creation, I love how one theologian puts it, everything in creation was preaching God's goodness. This is why God was creating the things that he was creating to proclaim his goodness so that he would stand back and look at all that he created and say that it was good. Well, he continues on day two to to make the skies and he stands back and say it with me, church, he looks at the skies and he says, it is good. Day three, he makes dry land, plants, and trees, and declares in verse 12 that it is good. Say it with me. We're losing participation, all right? Participation. Help me out here. In verse four, he makes the sun, moon, and stars. In verse 18, he says, it is good. On day five, he makes the creatures that swim and fly and declares about these creatures that swim and fly that it is good. On day six, he makes animals that walk on the earth and declares about them that they are good. God creates all these things to a standard of his pleasure. And once these things are adequately displaying his glory and his power and his divine nature, he's able to stand back and say that it is good. Something significant happens in verse 26, though. On the sixth day after he says it's good, he's not done creating. Look what happens in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And in verse 28 down to the end of 31, it continues to talk about the creation of man and God's word to them. Now, this is especially significant. There's a few reasons why this particular creation is significant. The first reason I want you to notice is that look how long it is. All the other days have maybe two or three verses to explain them, but when it comes to the creation of man, this is the longest portion of the creation account. So as to point our attention to the fact that the crown of creation is Adam and Eve, we would love if maybe there is like a little excursus in parts of Genesis 1, wouldn't we? We have a lot of questions about the things that God created. Some of us would love if there were like a few verses to maybe explain why God would create something like cats. And yet it's not there. God spends time talking about the creation of man and woman, the creation of Adam and Eve, because there's something especially significant about the creation of human beings. Not only Notice not only that it's the largest portion of Genesis 1, notice the amount of pleasure that God takes in man. Look at verse 31. When God steps back and looks at his creation in Adam and Eve, says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, this is interesting, it was very good, very good. Six times as God created In Genesis 1, he stands back and says, this is good. But when he comes to Adam and Eve, he says, this is very good. It's like, you ever ever have that friend or that person in your family? They're just never pleased with anything. How was the movie? Eh, It was okay. How was the food? Eh, It was all right. 
how is this? Eh, that's all right. And you see some of you guys looking at the person beside you. That's you. Well, here God has finally found something he's ultimately pleased with. When he makes Adam and Eve, it, it, they are very good. And lastly, I want you to see why they're significant. It's because in verse 26, God chose to make Adam and Eve in his image. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about what this means and really talking about the implications. We could probably spend a sermon on this. We could probably spend a whole sermon series on what this means. But suffice to say, it means ultimately that Adam and Eve were created to display God's worth. This is what they were created for. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it's kind of like the way that a coin is made. When you stamp that coin with the original, it kind of creates a copycat of that version. Or when a painting is painting, there's the original, and then you, you create copies of that painting. And when you look at a copy, what it points to is the awesomeness, the worth of the original. To be created in the image of God is to be like a mirror so that when people look at the creation of God, Adam and Eve, humanity that's made in the image of God, what's meant to happen is that they reflect the goodness of who God is being made in their image. And in verse 28, God not only creates Adam and Eve in his image, he gives them this command. I think this is probably every husband's favorite command in all of scripture. He says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And the command is for Adam and Eve to multiply and have children and for their children to have children until one day there are hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of people on the earth, each made in the image of God, each existing for this purpose, that when you look at their life, they're displaying the glory, the goodness, the divine power, the divine nature of God. means that your life is created to display something beyond yourself. You're created for worship, the purpose of your life, independent of what you think your purpose is, is that you were created to display the infinite value, the infinite worth, the infinite glory of the God who created you. You were created for worship. And so we see this throughout the rest of Genesis that in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are placed in the garden to work for God. They're co-regents placed under the authority of God to work for God and work under him. So in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, moving on to the next chapter now, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden. And who gives Adam and Eve purpose in the garden? He said, it's God. He says that Adam's placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. Adam and Eve would live in the garden fulfilling the mission that God had given them, the purpose that God had given them to display his worth by listening to his command to work and keep the garden. And in chapter 3.8, we're told that God would be with them in the garden, walking with them. His divine presence would be there. Adam and Eve would be like priests in the garden, working and keeping in the midst of God's presence, living to serve God. Everything they would do to be, would be to build God's kingdom, to display the worth of God's character so that as they were in the garden, working and keeping the garden, expanding the boundaries of the garden until one day it would fill the whole earth as Adam and Eve were successful in their mission, people would look to the success and see the glory and goodness of God. They were made for worship. They were made to worship God in relationship to him, and so God gives them their purpose. But notice in verse 16 and 17, he also gives them a negative command. 
In verse 16 and 17, God puts a tree of knowledge of good and evil and commands them not to eat it. You ever wonder why God puts this tree right in the middle of the garden? Is this like irresponsible parenting? I remember one time I was feeding my kids and I was cutting them up some fruit and I put the knife down. I turned around and I I think every parent kind of has a story like this. Hopefully you'll make me feel a little more comfortable with this. Turned around and my kid was waving this knife above their head like it was a machete and they were ready to start chopping things down. And I freaked out. It was probably the most irresponsible moment of my parenting. You don't give your children dangerous things. Well, God puts this tree of knowledge of good and evil right in the middle of the garden and says, hey, Adam and Eve, do not eat of this tree. If you eat of it, you will die. And one of the responses you can have to that is like, if God really loved Adam and Eve, why wouldn't he put that tree up on like a mountain that they couldn't get to? And yet God puts it right in the middle of the garden. Why does he do that? Well, it's because every day Adam and Eve would see this tree that they were commanded not to eat and be reminded that they don't live for their own glory. They don't live as their own master. They live to serve God. They live to obey God's command, that their greatest worth, their greatest value is found in serving and living for God and carrying out his command and carrying out his commission. This is what we need to understand about our lives. We're created, we're designed, we're intended to worship God. This answers the question why we never really feel satisfied in the worship of other things. It's because we weren't created to worship other things. The things of this world were not created to ultimately satisfy you. They cannot because they weren't created to. You were created to be in a relationship with God. And until you find that relationship and live and abide in Jesus Christ, you will always feel like you're running on a treadmill, never arriving at your destination. You were created to be satisfied in a relationship with the one who created all things. This is why Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Worshiping Anything other than God is like trying to fit a square shape into a round hole. You just can't do it. I wonder if God has you here for a specific purpose this morning to show you this reality that you've been living this life of worship, worshiping the things of earth, but that you weren't created for that. You're created for so much more, to live in relationship with him, to worship him. All right, we're done Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Are you worried about how long this message is going to be? I promise that we're going to start moving faster. You can turn your Bible. Actually, stay in Genesis 3 because we're going to go to Genesis 3 now, okay? Second thing I want you to see is that not only were you created for worship, you were redeemed for worship. The issue after Adam and Eve choose to disobey is that their hearts are no longer attracted to the things that they should be attracted to. They no longer find valuable the things that they were created to find valuable. They no longer find worthwhile the things that they were created to find worthwhile. And so at one point where they, when they relished in the presence of God and they loved to obey his command, now they are ashamed in the presence of God in chapter 3. See, the problem of sin, this is instructive for us, the problem of sin really is a problem of worship. Adam and Eve were created to find their worth in being image bearers and carrying out God's command to work and keep the garden. But now instead of delighting in the things that they were created to do, now instead of finding worth in their relationship with God, now they're ashamed of the things that they should be worshiping God. 
They're ashamed in the presence of God. It's really a question of worship. Will they worship the one who created them, or will they ultimately exchange the worship of God for the worship of the things he created? And the moment they chose to eat of the forbidden fruit was the moment that they chose to tear God off the altar that he deserves and uh, deserves to be on. And they tear God off that altar and place this fruit on it, saying that eating this forbidden fruit is more valuable to me than living and serving God. This is how Paul explains our sin in Romans 1. As he's talking about those who don't live for God, he says, for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, this is the problem with our sin. It's really a problem of worship. What happens when we sin against God is we take God out of his rightful place, the place of worship, the place of honor, the place of service. We take him off the altar and we put something else there as though this thing could really live up to God's worth. This is what we do every time we sin, and it really is foolish. Because as we think about it, we know that nothing could live up to the worth of God. And yet in our sin, what we do is we take this created thing and we say, this is way more worthy than God. And think about even Adam and Eve's sin for a moment. They were created in the garden to live for God. God told them they can eat of every tree, any tree they want. They were finding satisfaction and delight in their life of obedience, but then they chose to eat the forbidden fruit. And what did God tell them about the forbidden fruit? Did God say, hey, this fruit's going to taste really good. You're going to love it. Did God say, hey, once you eat this fruit, it's going to completely change and revolutionize your life. It's going to be a good thing, almost comparable to living for me. The only thing that God promised about the fruit was if they ate it, they would die. That's the only promise. There's nothing positive. And yet Adam and Eve, in the foolishness of their sin, choose to take the fruit and eat of it. And the only thing promised of of that fruit was delivered to them, death. They exchanged the worship of the living God for the worship of the forbidden fruit. And it's the same exchange we make every time we sin. We exchange a relationship with God that provides life and satisfaction for a relationship with sin that only ever leads to death. It never truly satisfies us because it cannot. Every sin we struggle with is a battle of worship where we constantly rip God off his rightful throne to place something else on it. And the ultimate sentence for worshiping something that is not God is death. This is why Adam and Eve, they're taken from the garden which bears the tree of life the garden where God walks and dwells, and they're cast outside. But the amazing, beautiful truth is that once they're cast outside, God isn't finished with them. And in Genesis 3, 15, when God speaks to the serpent, he gives us great hope. Look at these words, these words of hope in Genesis 3, 15. He says this to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see that promise there, church? He shall bruise your head. Someone is coming who is going to bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise the head of this person's heel. Now, you don't need to know much about like martial arts to know who's going to win that fight. If you get into a fight and you walk out with a bruised heel and the other person walks out with a bruised head, then you've won that fight. 
And what God is saying is that there's going to be now this cosmic battle. It's really the rest of the story of Scripture, this cosmic battle between God and Satan. And at the end of it, God is going to win. It's this promise that God is going to carry humanity through their sin to deliverance, that he is going to redeem Adam and Eve from their foolishness of worshiping the wrong thing. And so all of Scripture really launches into this cosmic battle so that you pick up the story in bits and pieces all through Scripture. And even through Genesis, you see this battle between the line of the woman and the line of the serpent taking place. And it seems like the line of the woman is growing and growing and growing so that in Exodus chapter 1, and you can turn there now, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, things are going very well for God's people. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. See, what was happening was God's command was winning. God had commanded the people to be fruitful and multiply. And now in Exodus 1, they are being fruitful and they're growing in strength. And the land is filled with God's people. And it seems like the serpent is is losing, like the victory is being delivered to God's people. But then in verse 8, something happens. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, and this king subjects Israel to slavery. And now the people of God find themselves under a new master, serving a new king, no longer serving the God that they were created to worship and serve. Now they're serving Pharaoh. They're subject to his slavery, his cruel slavery. So much so that in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. The people of God are groaning. Life's not the way it's supposed to be. They're not experiencing the victory that God had promised them. They're not experiencing the satisfaction that God had created them for. Instead, they're in slavery in Egypt, and they cry out to God. And I wonder if you've ever found yourself in the same place where you just feel like life is not the way it's supposed to be, like something is missing. You're not experiencing the joy that you're supposed to, you feel like you're supposed to. You're not experiencing the satisfaction that you feel like you are supposed to. The question is, in that moment, what do you do? Do you look for something else in the world to satisfy you? Do you decide that maybe you just need more of the thing that you've been pursuing? More money? More fame? More popularity? More family? Or do you cry out to God? And the Israelites in this moment, they cry out to God, and look at what happens in verse 23. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. In verse 24, God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. In the midst of our emptiness, in the midst of our groaning, in the midst of our need and search for satisfaction, for something that's finally going to be worth our time and attention, resource and worship, God hears us and he acts in the same way that he acted for the people of Israel. So that in verse 
Chapter 3, verse 12, God raises up a deliverer in Moses, and he gives this promise to Moses. He says, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of this Egypt, you, uh, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Other translations have that exact word, worship God on this mountain. This is one of the many, wor- uh, many words in the Old Testament that are used to explain the worship of God's people. It's a life of service, serving God's purpose. And in Egypt, the children of God were serving Pharaoh. They were serving a different God. And God looks to Israel to say this, I am going to redeem you to my service. Multiple points over the next few chapters, God's going to refine what this worship and what this service looks like. In in chapter 5, verse 1, he says that as he takes Egypt out of, sorry, Israel out of Egypt, that they would celebrate God's goodness through feasts to the Lord. When Moses talks to Pharaoh, he says that he needs to take his people out of Egypt so that they can perform sacrifices to the Lord. But God's ultimate redemptive purposes were for Israel were that his presence would be restored to his people. So that in chapter 6, and you can turn there if you're following along with me, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he makes this promise to the people. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with eight great acts of judgments. Then listen to this, church. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God's ultimate redemptive purpose is that when a people who are created to worship him go astray, that he will act to redeem them. In Egypt, the children of God were worshiping the wrong God, were worshiping the wrong thing, but God acts powerfully to deliver them from their slavery so that he might redeem them for his own purposes, for his own worship. And so you need to know this very truth, that if you're in Christ, the reason why you were saved, the reason why God acted to redeem you was for worship. This was the motive of God in your redemption, so that he could restore you to what you were created for, for his worship. This is why in Ephesians 2, 7, Paul says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show this, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When you're saved, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the fundamental purpose of your existence has changed. You no longer live for the things of this world. Now your identity is a worshiper. You're saved from worship to worship. Your identity is taken away from slavery to sin and placed in the worship of God. Maybe you're here and you've experienced the emptiness of worship or naturally enslaved to by sin, and you need to know that the offer of redemption is for you, that God comes into our story, the life of our worship, and he offers redemption. Redemption comes through his deliverance, just in, as in, just in Egypt, he would, just as in Egypt, he would deliver his children through the ten plagues, by delivering through the waters of the Red Sea. So God has provided deliverance for us through Jesus Christ. He has sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, to walk this earth and ultimately die to defeat our greatest enemy. Not the physical enemy of Egypt, but the spiritual enemy of our sin and slavery to it. And what God does for us this morning through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is hold out our hand to us 
to restore us to what we originally were created for, to a relationship with him. That offers for you this morning. And if you've received it, you need to understand that this is who you are. This is your identity now. You're a worshiper of God. Which leads us to our next point, that we're created for worship, we're redeemed for worship, that we're invited for worship. You can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Immediately when God delivers Israel in, verses, in chapters 1 to 19 of Exodus, he brings them to the mountain, just like he told Moses he would. And on the mountain, he brings Moses up to the top to speak to him specifically. And in verse 20, chapter 20, we hear God speaking to Moses, and he gives the people the Ten Commandments. Now remember that the promise that God had given to Moses was that he would be their God and they would be his people. And God had delivered on the first part, hadn't he? He had delivered Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, out of their captivity under Pharaoh. He had delivered them to the desert. And his presence was with them. And now it was time for the second part. Now it was time for the people of God to act as the people of God. And so what you have in the Ten Commandments is God saying, this this is what it means to worship me. This is what it means to live for me. This is what it means to be my people. This is how you are to live. But I want you to notice something really important, that before God gets into the Ten Commandments, look what he says in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, before God tells them how they are to live, he reminds them how he has redeemed them. And what God's about to do in the Ten Commandments is to invite them into a life of worship with him and into a life of relationship with him. But what God wants us to understand is that we can't be invited to that relationship. We can't obey him unless we first are redeemed from our sin. And God says to Israel, I've redeemed you. Now it's time for obedience. And this changes the way that we understand obedience. See, obedience doesn't come to Israel so that they might find salvation. Obedience comes to Israel as an invitation to live in relationship with God. This is why as the psalmists talk about the law, you know what you never see in Scripture? You never see the psalmist saying, oh man, this law, it really, it's really too bad. I wish I didn't have to live under the law. Instead, what you see time and time in Scripture, and especially in Psalm 119, you see that the law of God, the commands of God, are the delight of God's people. Well, why is that? Because the commands that God gives to his people come from a redemptive action that he's already done in their lives. And it's an expression of God's people wanting to live in his presence. The laws of God brought God's people closer to him. This is ultimately what obedience is. Once we're saved, once we're in Christ, it's not about our salvation. We're called to a life of obedience because we're called to a life of relationship. As we obey God's word, he's calling us to serve him. And as we listen to God's word, we're saying this, God, you're worthy to be served. God, you are the rightful Lord. You are the rightful master of my life. And as I'm obeying you, I'm obeying you because I believe you are worth it. I believe that everything you have for me in obedience is way better than anything else I could pursue in life. Obedience really is the heart of our worship. 
If you want to talk about worship, you cannot do it without talking about obedience. This is why all throughout the Old Testament, the words that are used for worshiping all really center around obedience. There's three primary words in the Old Testament that are used, and if we were to translate them into English, it would be bowing down, serving God, and honoring God. And each of those really reveal that you're living for God with this heart for obedience to say, God, I'm bowing before you. I'm bowing in front of you. I'm not bowing to any other thing, God. I'm bowing to you to say that you're the one I want to live for. You're the one that's worthy of my life. To live in obedience is to say, God, I want to serve you. I don't want to serve any other king. I don't want to serve any other master. God, I'm serving you. To live in obedience is to honor God. as Lord and Master. This is why God calls us to obedience. This is why God called his people to obedience. Because once he's redeemed his people, he calls his people to relationship with him, and the people joyfully respond in obedience, I want to live for you. When we obey, we show that God's our master. We show that he is our, the one that is worthy of our worship. In my family, if you were to come in at any given time, you'd, find, you'd pr- likely find us in the midst of an argument. There's this ongoing argument with, that me and my wife really have with each of our children. And the question is, are you a daddy's girl or are you a mommy's girl? And we're constantly battling for their affection. And our kids have really learned how to play both sides. They learn it quickly. They learn very quickly that they should answer both. Or if I'm just with them alone and I say, hey, are you a daddy's girl or a mommy's girl? They'll tell me I'm a daddy's girl. But then when I know that when their mom is with them and says, hey, are you a daddy's girl or mommy's girl? They'll say, oh, I'm a mommy's girl. They know how to play both sides. Their allegiance really is to neither one of us. I wonder if this is the way that you are trying to obey God. God's created you for his worship. He's redeemed you for worship. He's invited you to a life of worship that's shown in the actions of obedience. And yet many of us, we kind of obey God with this half-hearted allegiance. Yeah, I'm for God, but I'm also for all these other things. And I don't want to give up all these other things. And so, God, I'll follow you so long as I don't have to give up these other things. But that's not what Jesus requires of us. When God calls us into a relationship with him, he says, I've redeemed you from slavery to all things so that you can live with your full allegiance to me. This is why the rich young ruler went away saddened, because he wanted to obey God, but he also wanted to follow his own passions, to worship money. And God says, if you're going to be a follower of me, you need to give all your allegiance to me. This is what worship is. It's a life of obedience, not so that we might receive salvation, but that we might express and reflect a heart that is bowed down, willing to serve, desiring to honor God. And so let me ask you this question. How does your life display an obedience that comes from a heart of worship? An obedience that declares to the world that you value nothing more than you value God's opinion. And we see the call to obedience is a call to respond to God's invitation into his presence. We'll live in obedience. Fourth thing I want you to see is that you're transformed for worship. You're transformed for worship. You're created for worship. You're redeemed for worship. You're invited for worship. And you're transformed for the worship. This is the problem that we see all throughout the Old Testament is that you can deliver God's people from their physical masters. You can deliver God's people from their physical enemies, but if you don't deliver them from their spiritual enemies, they'll always turn away. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see good men, but we never see men who are able to fulfill God's command to live for him. Even David, the greatest of all men, the man after God's own heart, sins with Bathsheba. 
And so all throughout the Old Testament, they're looking forward to a day where they can be delivered from their greatest enemy, the spiritual enemy of their sin, the spiritual slavery that they're in because of the fallenness of their own heart. So the prophets look forward to a day that the people of God would receive a new heart, a heart that could actually live in the true worship of God. Ezekiel says in chapter 11, verse 19, I'll give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. See, the problem is, is that if we have a heart that's corrupted by sin and will only worship the things of earth, we need heart change. We need to be transformed. And changing our physical circumstances, taking Israel out of Egypt won't fix the heart. Only God can do that. I wonder if some of you have lived your life, you really want to worship God. You've been saved and, and, and you just, you want to worship him. You want to live a life that's worthy of him. You want, to, you want your life to proclaim his worth constantly. But you just find it so challenging because you always fall back into sin. You always find yourself worshiping other things. And so someone tells you, well, then you just got to read your Bible. And so you commit to, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to get into God's presence. And you do it for a week. Maybe you do it for a month, but then it gets hard again. And life gets busy and you can't do it. And you find that life is this constant up and down of, I want to worship God, but I just can't. And so often what we do when we want to worship God is we fix all the external things. Well, I'm just going to wake up earlier. I'm going to get on a Bible reading plan. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. We fix all the external things. But what God wants us to understand is that if our heart isn't transformed for worship, then we'll never worship him. You can even do all the external things right and never do it with a heart of worship. This is why Jesus had such strong words for the Pharisees. And he said, though they worship me, their hearts are far from me. Because what we truly need is a heart that's transformed to no longer find value in the things of this world, but to find value in the things of earth. So many of us try to worship God without being changed by God. It's like trying to move your car without having gas in it. You can put it in neutral. You can push it a little ways. You can get somewhere, but you're not going to get very far. And that's been our life. And God calls us to a different life. He calls us to transformation. If we want transformation, we need God to intervene. And this is the astounding reality that God intervened. It happens in Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament. We see that God is coming to intervene. At the beginning of Matthew 1, Matthew draws out this genealogy from Adam all the way to Jesus, through Abraham, through David, to, to Jesus, to say that this man that's coming is the center of, of all human history. This is the most important man that will ever live. Well, why is he that way? Well, it's because of the promise that's made by the angel in verse 23, who said this, and we sang this earlier this morning. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God's promise for transformation comes to us in the form of a God named Emmanuel, which means God with us. When we couldn't live in a way that could satisfy God, God sent his own son to be present with us. This is the whole story of the Old Testament. The people of God couldn't dwell in the presence of God because of their sin. And we can't do that either. But what God has done for us is he has sent us his son, Emmanuel. And this is the major difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Every other world religion, you know what it says? It says you need to climb up the mountain through your good works, through your obedience to get to God. If you want to be in God's presence, you need to be a good person. You need to live with good works. You need to change your life. 
In Christianity, it says you'll never do that. You can't do that. If you want to be in God's presence, then he needs to do something for you. He needs to come down the mountain. And this is what God did in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. God sent his son in the form of a baby to be with us. And when, while Jesus was here, through the gospel of Matthew, he started pointing out the ways that he would make things different. He stood in front of the temple in chapter 12 of Matthew, and he said these words, these shocking words, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That would be shocking for the Israelite. Because the temple was the very presence of God. And Jesus stands in front of the temple and says, something greater than the temple is here. Why is Jesus greater than the temple? Because at the end of Matthew, what Jesus will say is to the disciples is this, behold, I am with you. Emmanuel, God is with you to the end of the ages. Something would happen in the life of Jesus Christ so that if you're sitting here today and you place your faith in him, God's presence can be with you. We know the thing that happened was that Jesus climbed onto a cross and died the death that we needed to die because of our false worship, because our hearts had gone so far from him because we had ripped God off of that altar time and time again and placed other things on the altar because we have chosen the life of disobedience that only led to death. God sent his only son to die for us, to pay the penalty of our sin and to give us a new heart so that everyone who places their faith in him, believes in him, receives these words from Jesus that he gave to his disciples. Behold, I am with you to the end of the ages. God couldn't dwell in the presence of our disobedience and unclean hearts, but he provided a way for us to find a heart of obedience, to receive a new heart, and it was through the cross where Jesus died to pay for the penalty and create a new people so that we were transformed for worship so that we could now find worth in the things that are truly worthwhile. And the last thing I want you to see, and I say this in closing, is that you we're glorified for worship. And maybe a better way to phrase that is that you will be glorified for worship. In Revelation chapter 4, this is as far as we're going to get. We're not going to get to Revelation chapter two, 22, but we almost made it to the end. Revelation chapter 4, John gets a picture into heaven. And the picture that he gets is that there are angels flying around the throne 24-7. And what are those angels doing? They're worshiping. They're calling out to God, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. They're declaring the worth of God. 24-7 they're doing this. Why do they do it 24-7? Why do they do it all the time? Because for all of eternity in heaven, we will worship God forever. And we will never begin to be able to describe just how worthy God is of worship. Do you realize that? It's not like we're going to get to heaven and realize, oh, that's just how worthy God is. God's infinitely worthy. For all of eternity, you will spend all of your time realizing more and more every day, every moment, that God is more worthy of worship than you thought he was. And it never stops for all of eternity because you were created for worship, you were redeemed for worship, you're invited for worship, you're transformed for worship, and ultimately you will be glorified for all of eternity to worship God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, Lord, you care about our worship. And Lord, when we were created to worship you and fell 
astray, Lord. You did not leave us, but you chose to redeem us and invite us into a life of worship, and you made it possible for us to do that. And so, God, now we take this time to respond in song to you. Lord, to respond and say, God, you are worthy of worship. God, to say that we long for a day where our hearts will be truly made pure, where we won't battle anymore, we won't struggle anymore with the worship of wrong things, with the worship of things that will never satisfy and fulfill us. God, in heaven, with all sin being cast away, we will worship what is true, what is right, and what is ultimately satisfying. God, because we'll be with you. And everything we do will be in your, in the, to the worship of your name. And so, God, we praise you that you haven't left us. After sin, Lord, you chose to redeem us. You chose to unite your story of worship to ours so that we could be saved for an eternity of worship. And so, God, we give you all the praise. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen.